So let's talk about this. This is about King Solomon. And if you know nothing else about Solomon, you know that he is known to be the king of wisdom. That is what he represents. And so Solomon is the king referred to when this story begins. The backstory behind this verse is that Solomon had just had a dream where he was asked by God for one thing, one wish, what would you have? And Solomon in the dream said, I would have wisdom. And God was so pleased by that request that he bestowed wisdom upon him. That happens earlier in this very same chapter. Right after that is this occurrence, this first public testing of this God-given wisdom to him. And if you have ever experienced the first of anything, which I know you have, the first is always a little nervy. It's always a little, wow, I've got to get this right. You know, first time I'm doing this job, first time I'm driving this car, um, first time that I'm being a father or a mother, first time, first time, first time. There's always a little extra adrenaline, a little extra awareness that you want to get this first time right. So as Solomon is standing before these two prostitutes and hearing this story where one child is dead and one is alive and whose child is still living, he has to be aware that people are watching him. This is his first public uh, atten attention to a verdict. And what he does here and how he handles it will go wide and far to establish his reputation. You also, though, need to know a little other material about Solomon. So Solomon rose to this position of king through a lot of strife. It wasn't a straight line. There was blood. There was deceit. There was turmoil. There was bribery. It was not a clean path to this throne. So as much as, again, the general public, if you know anything about Solomon, as much as wisdom is attributed to Solomon, you have to know that his pathway to the throne was not clean. And later in his life, it was not clean either. He made some very questionable decisions, did some immoral acts. And so, yes, he is associated with wisdom, and yes, he is the centerpiece of this passage. But it's not all crystal clear. It's not, as I like to say to my students, it's not roses and butterflies. Uh, there is darkness on either side of this, places where he was not walking in the light of God all the time. And the other thing that you need to know about Solomon is voiced extremely well by theologian Cameron Howard. Howard says, babies, prostitutes, widows, orphans, society's most defenseless members lived and died by the whim and will of the king. So the king had incredible power. We think, of course, in a, in a democratic format here in the United States where we have judicial, we have the president, we have Congress, we have all of these checks and balances. Solomon had immense power, and he was most powerful to the powerless. And so two of them stand in front of him knowing that what he says will change their lives. And he can say anything, anything that is full of grace and pardon to anything that is full of immense punishment. And it will be done. And because they have the least power and the least standing, they will take what he gives them.
So that's the Solomon part. And again, this story is looked at often in biblical studies through the lens of examining how Solomon handled this. What did he do? What did he say? And how did he come up with a way to figure out what the truth was? He represents wisdom. But there are two other players here, and they are the women, the two prostitutes who come forward in this confusing and heartrending situation. So let's take a few minutes and look at these women and what we know about them. So first of all, they are the lowest in society. They are not just likely poor, and certainly poor without anything given to them from, from any men who would be attending to them, but they have made bad choices. They have made choices that led them from presumably a normal life at one time into a situation of desperation where the choice they made was probably self-preservation in the only way they knew, which was selling themselves, giving their bodies over for the exchange of money or food or whatever their circumstance was. So they are not just severed from the mainstream of the society, but they are looked down upon. They are seen as unworthy. And yet, I imagine there's not a soul in this room who hasn't made a bad choice. We may sit here in our nice, warm, beautiful sanctuary and think that we have nothing in common with these women, and yet we make bad choices every day. Theirs maybe are a little more in the spotlight, a little more obvious, but sin is sin. And there's more that we can identify with in these women than first would appear. Another thing to consider with them is that both of them are in a state of immense grief. They are grieving, both of them. Okay, we know that one of them is lying and one of them is telling the truth but they are both anchored in grief. Their words are rising from it. One woman had a living son when she went to sleep at night. Presumably the child was next to her in the bed. She rolled over. She smothered her son. That happens today, all right? And so she has lost her child. That woman has no son anymore. And for a woman who would have next to nothing in this society anyway, she is desperately sorrowful. The other woman went to bed with her son beside her, and then she wakes to find a dead baby next to her, and so she is feeling that grief initially, and then she feels that that is not her baby, that is the baby of the other woman, but that woman is taking her all the way to the king. She is fighting for the life of this child. So both women have lost. Both women have strife, and both women have immense grief. Imagine something that you desperately love being taken from you, or being claimed by somebody else, and you are challenging against that, and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Looking at these women through that lens reveals a lot less judgment and a lot more empathy. Because I think we all can understand making bad choices and we all can understand grief. Pastor David Radcliffe makes a very bold statement when looking at these women. He says, 
Solomon was concerned about these two women because God was concerned about them. Let me read that again. Solomon was concerned about these two women because God was concerned about them. That's pretty incredible. Because where we stand in this lofty judgment, oh, prostitutes, I would never be in a position like that. Oh, they kind of deserve this turmoil. You know, there's, there's lying and there's, there's adultery or there's other immoral acts going on. There's just a mess. You know, they kind of, they kind of deserve this. That's not how God sees it. Solomon, the king who is standing in front of them in this lens of wisdom, is representing justice, but God doesn't even see it that way. He sees it through compassion. These are his children, too. If we ever get so caught up in our holier-than-thou walk that we forget how much we are sinners equally as those who are more obviously out there publicly sinners like these prostitutes, then we are forgetting how God looks down upon all of us and loves us all, every one of us. When we watch the news and we see victims, we pray and we feel united with them. When we see killers, we think, oh, that's awful, terrible person. God doesn't see victims and killers. God sees his children, all of them, and he loves all of them. Solomon is concerned about these women because God is concerned about them. That's the women. They represent, at the heart of this fight for the, the life and protection and rights to this little baby boy, they represent love. How about that? Two prostitutes represent or symbolize love here because they love a child, whether it is this living child or the child who died, they love that child. So who shines brighter here? Is it Solomon or the women? Is it wisdom or love? I have a pretty strong opinion about that. And so does Reverend Rick Pendleton. Listen to what he wrote. This mother was willing to sacrifice the joy of raising the child, the memories of the toddler years, seeing first steps, hearing first words, hearing mama. One of these women was willing to give all of that up out of love for her son. She would rather not have him beside her than to know he was dead. She was ready to surrender this very public first judgment situation that Solomon was making in order to sacrificially see her son live. And yes, her willingness is what told Solomon who the real mother was. But forget that part for a moment. She loved her son so much that she was willing to give up everything so that he could live, so that he could one day walk and talk and grow up and become a man. And even if she was not going to be beside him, she was willing to make that sacrifice. Sacrificial love 
the willingness to give all in order to allow something you love to be okay, to be better, to be hopeful, to be happy. This calls to mind for me one of my very favorite children's books. I'm going to read this to you, and I ask that I, as I read this very familiar story, I ask that you relax, that you perhaps close your eyes and imagine the pages that you have certainly touched with your own hands and looked at with your own eyes. And I ask you to sink into this very simple and beautiful story that is yet another illustration of sacrificial love. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy. And every day, that boy would come and gather her leaves and make a crown and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches. He would eat her apples, and they would play hide-and-go-seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then one day, the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat my apples and be happy. I am too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things. I need money. Can you give me money? I'm sorry, said the tree. I have no money. I just have leaves and apples. But you could gather my apples and take them to the town and sell them. Then you will have money. So the boy gathered the apples, carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. But then one day, the boy came back, and the tree shook with joy. The tree said, come, boy, come climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I am too busy to climb a tree, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife and children, and so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my home. But you can cut down my branches and build a house, and then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off all of her branches and carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long, long time. And when he came back, 
the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, whispered the tree. Come, come and play. I am too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat to sail away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk, said the tree, and build a boat. Then you can sail away and be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long, long, long time, the boy came back again. I am sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I am too old to swing on branches, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish I could give you something. I have nothing left to give. I am just an old stump. I am sorry. I don't need much these days, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is a good place to sit and rest. Come, boy, sit down, sit and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. We live in a world where sacrificial love is often a phrase not understood. We walk in a world where selfishness is much stronger than selflessness. I submit to you that this passage from 1 Kings is not about wisdom nor about love. It is about sacrificial love, the kind of love that only God represents for us and that we see day to day in the cleanest, clearest way by the relationships we have one to another when love and giving is the center of it all. I submit 
that we only understand what love truly is when we understand what sacrificial love is. Sacrificial love, like the woman was willing to offer for the baby she would let go to another woman if only he could live. Sacrificial love, like a tree in a children's book, gave to a boy in a children's book until there was nothing left but a stump and an old man. Look at the sheet you filled out in your bulletin. I ask you this. Is there anything in the left column that you would willingly sacrifice in order to obtain something in the right column? Let me say that again. Look at what you put in that left column, the things you love, the things you cherish, the things that matter the most to you. Would you willingly sacrifice any of them in the left column for what is in the right column? The right column, the things that you wish were true, the things you wish you could do, could have, could know. Do not answer that out loud. But my hunch is right now, as you look at these lists of these things that matter more to you than anything else, is that your heart is beating pretty hard in contemplating making a choice to give up something in that left column in order to secure something in that right column. Because, ladies and gentlemen, that giving would hurt. It would hurt so much. Because what is in your left column, what you love, that is the heart and soul of your existence on this planet right now. And yet, what is in that right column, things you wish for, those are noble, those are just, those are important, those perhaps are unattainable, but if you could trade, would you? Sacrificial love would say that you could take what is in that left column and sacrifice it for the right column. As much as it would hurt, as much as it would stir up pain and agony and loss, sacrificial love says you could do that. But guess what? God says you don't have to because I already did. In sending Jesus down to earth, I already did this thing. I already gave it all. I have already made this trade. So that as you walk through this earth and as you stumble and as you fall and as you love and as you lift others up and as you ache and as you revel in joy and as you do this thing called living, you are already in the light of sacrificial love. Because I did that for you. I did that for you. I love you. One of the most beautiful pairs of words in the passage that I read is very, very minimal in the big picture but it speaks to me. 
when the woman whose son was taken away from her woke in the morning and saw that her son was dead and she thought that she had lost him, she waited and looked at him in the morning light. I, I studied this passage, and I found no theologians who made any note of morning light. So I'm not a theologian, but I'm, I'm going to make note of it here because very few of you would know this. One of my favorite things is a sunrise. It is so underappreciated. Sunsets get all the glory. They're more dramatic. People are awake when they are happening. Sunrises, ah, they're a little quieter. A lot of people aren't going. Or if they're a teacher, they're already in school before the sun rises. You know, it's just they're, they're under the radar. But I love sunrises. Because the sunrise tells me that I have another chance to do this thing better. Probably won't do it right, but I'm going to sure try to do it better. This thing called living on this imperfect world, on, in this imperfect world, on this imperfect earth. I have a chance. I love sunrises. When I go to bed at night and I am sad and broken, or I am in pain, physical, mental, spiritual, and I wake in the morning, there's a sunrise waiting for me. And with every sunrise, there is hope. So when this woman waited to see the truth until she could see her son in the morning light, I had tears falling down my cheeks when I saw those words. Because somehow, the sunrise brought truth to her too. So as I close, I challenge you to look at every step you take through the morning light, the light from God, the God who already did this sacrificial love thing for us, and it makes it okay. It makes it possible for us to step forward, not in wisdom, not in simple love, but in the morning light of sacrificial love. One of those women is the mother of that child. It's obvious in the morning light. God is the father of us all. It is obvious in the morning light. Sacrificial love will always win. It is obvious because of the morning light. Let's pray. Lord, your words are gifts to us. They are anchors for us. They are reminders to us. They help us walk forward with more hope. They help us reorient our eyes and our gaze upon you as we live this day and tomorrow and the next and however many are given to us. Let us walk in the light of the sacrificial love that you model for us 
in the giving of your son. And let us walk knowing that giving the gift of sacrificial love one to another is a way that we can be the leaves, the apples, the branches, the trunk, and the resting place for ourselves and for those around us. In your grace, we will keep our eyes on the morning light. And when we wake each morning, may we be reminded that we have a chance to change this world and to live in sacrificial love because of the love that you gave us and the light that is our reminder of that. Amen.